Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaze and Dr. Daniel Kunima. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today we'll be talking about galaxies, uh, galaxies and their environments, how they evolve, clusters of galaxies, intracluster gas, basically everything to do with galaxies and cupcakes. And cupcakes and neighborhoods. And neighborhoods. Neighborhoods of cupcakes. Galaxies. <laughs> neighborhoods of bad cupcakes. <laughs> bad, bad neighborhood. Bad, okay. Bad cupcake neighborhoods. Okay, okay, Dad. <laughs> um. Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, kind of the biggest scale of things that there are. So um, galaxies and their neighbours and then their neighbours of neighbours and their neighbours of neighbours of neighbours, um, all the way out to the biggest scales that you get, which is which is called clusters of galaxies. These are enormous structures and uh, these clusters of galaxies can actually collide with one another and then there can be all of these different interactions of the, the kind of uh, fuzzy, faint gas that fills the space between galaxies and... Um, we call this the intracluster medium. Uh, so we're going to be talking all about what happens when galaxy clusters collide, what happens when galaxies collide. Yeah, um, and the, I think the reason we want to know all this stuff is because by understanding how these things are interacting, we can see how it affects how galaxies form and evolve, right? So we can see if galaxies and clusters are different to galaxies who are out on their own and and how they all sort of interact together and and change how they look and feel and evolve. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of the ultimate questions of the universe, isn't it? Like, what is out there? What is going on? And what can we see? Well, that's what we that's what we like to do, right? Yeah, that's why we're <laughs> astronomers. Yeah, so um, today you'll be hearing a few references to some trickier topics, I suppose, uh, some some words and, and things which will, will come out. Um, we'll be talking a lot about clusters, as we said, but uh, their mass, uh, luminosity, their redshift. So, Jacinta, do you want to just explain briefly how we determine clusters' masses and luminosities and what what is redshift? Yeah, I guess, uh, so the mass is basically just how much stuff there is, uh, how much matter, physical matter there is in these clusters uh, or in these galaxies or in anything. Um, if you put some mass on the Earth under the influence of gravity, we call it weight. So it's it's kind of the same thing. Uh, luminosity can be thought of just as how bright uh, something is, how much light it's emitting. So the more luminous an object is, the brighter it is. And redshift, uh, redshift is a is a slightly complicated topic, but for the purposes of what we're talking about today, you can basically think of it as the same thing as distance. So uh, a higher redshift means something that's further away. Yeah. Yeah. So here at the observatory, uh, one of the tools we use to do this, these sorts of observations and determine clusters, masses, luminosities, redshifts uh, is a very powerful tool we have called SALT, uh, the Southern African Large Telescope, which we spoke about more in uh, episode one. And... Yeah, that's a that's an, an excellent way of of determining these things and and trying to learn more about these clusters. 
Yeah, we can we can look at them across different wavelengths in the optical, for example, with something like salt in the radio for with something, for example, like meerkat, which we've which we also talked about in episode three, and uh, how to put those together to really get a great picture of um, galaxies and things. So. Here in the studio with us today is Professor Eric Wilcotts to talk to us all about galaxies and galaxy evolution and galaxy environments. Welcome, Eric. Oh, thanks to be here. It's great. Eric, do you mind telling us uh, who you are, where you're from? I was introduced, Eric Wilcotts. I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, so that's in the United States. I'm a regular visitor to South Africa because Wisconsin is one of the partners in the Southern African Large Telescope in the SALT project. Uh, we've been a partner since the beginning. Uh, and so I get to have the pleasure of coming to South Africa regularly to collaborate, to look at sort of the administrative structure of the observatory, and, and generally just to have a lot of fun doing astronomy. So what does it actually mean to be a partner in SALT? It means that we have, with the rest of the partners, have invested in both the construction and the operation of the facility. And so, for example, the primary instrument on SALT uh, was built at the University of Wisconsin. And so we have been in, since the beginning, put money into helpful instruction, uh, the construction and now we're paying an annual operations cost. And in exchange for that investment, we get a fraction of the telescope time that's available. And so for the University of Wisconsin, that's about 16%. And so to translate that, that means roughly 16% of the, the nights or the hours that are available or for observing are probably being used by one or more of my colleagues at UW-Madison to look at some astronomical object. Do you know what kind of astronomical objects they're looking at? Uh, we look at, at almost all kinds of astronomical objects. So I've got collaborators who are interested in, say, comets, for example. Uh, we've got a big group that are a big theme looking at, at very compact stars and understanding how they change over time. My own interest is looking at galaxies and their environment. So we've got lots of people who are interested in understanding sort of that the broad distribution of galaxies in the universe and what that's telling us about how the universe has changed over time. So we've spoken before about SALT and its uh, capabilities at looking at these distant galaxies. Uh, so that's something that you focus on. Uh, how exactly does SALT go about observing these galaxies and, and what can we learn? So one of the one of the things that I'm very interested in is that think of galaxies as, as a neighborhood. Uh, and so I'm really interested in what kind of neighborhoods do the galaxies live in, and then what impact that neighborhood has on, on how that galaxy has changed over time, but also what impact that galaxy might have on its neighborhood. Uh, so the particular, and how SALT will do this, is that we can design for SALT certain things called a, in one case, a mask, and that allows us to put a little piece of metal actually into the, the telescope, essentially, that allows us to pinpoint maybe eight, nine, ten galaxies at a time. That light will come through the instrument, and what gets recorded for eight or ten galaxies is what we call their spectrum, and that's sort of their signature. Uh, and with that signature, we can tell a couple of things. One, we can tell what type of galaxy it is, and importantly for the things I like to do, we can tell how fast that galaxy is moving. And that helps us determine what kind of neighborhood the, the galaxy we might, might be interested in lives in based on that information about, it, about its neighbors. What kind of neighborhoods do galaxies live in, and do they get on with their neighbors? <laughs> Um, 
to answer the second part of the question, sometimes they you know, they like to interact with one another and they run into one another and, and that causes some some interesting fireworks in the sky, as you might as you might imagine. So to to, to the, the one analogy I have coming from from Wisconsin, which is is one of the states, and I think it applies to South South Africa, you can think of the distribution of communities in South Africa. There are a couple of really big cities, Cape Town, Johannesburg. We're gonna call those clusters. So that's, they're very dense. It's very easy to run into one another. So the galaxies that live in clusters tend to interact with one another by bumping into one another, kind of like a, kind of like a big, a big city. Outside of the city, there are sets of smaller communities and say, let's take a, a Stellenbosch. I like, I like wine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just to pick one place. <laughs> so those those are smaller communities, and we c- would consider them to be groups of galaxies. So things aren't quite as dense, aren't quite as, as close together, less well populated. And the, the environment in a smaller town like a Stellenbosch is different than the environment in one of the big cities like a Cape Town or Johannesburg. And so the question that we ask about galaxies is, is when a galaxy moves into that, that small town, what might happen to it? And, and we can talk later on about the things that can happen to a galaxy in that, in that environment. But those are some examples. And then we do have galaxies that are living very far out, still in, in, they're very isolated. So they're out on the rural regions where they really don't see their neighbors at all. So therefore, they're not interacting with their neighbors at all. And so that's a different way that galaxies can can spend a big chunk of their lifetimes. So these galaxies reside in, in groups and clusters. How do they get into these groups and clusters? You you mentioned the, the galaxies moving into a, a group. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, is this, this on some sort of large-scale structure? It, it is the large-scale structure, and, and what we should all remember is that gravity m- rules all. And so galaxies are moving because of, of gravity. There is a, a mass distribution that makes the, the galaxies move. And so what we think when we look out at the universe as a, as a very large chunk of the universe, you will see galaxies that are distributed in kind of a filamentary network. And from what we can tell, galaxies are, are in these filaments. The filaments connect at clusters, kind of like, you know, the major highways will all sort of converge in a city. These filaments are coming together in, in the galaxy clusters. Along the way, along the filaments, we will see groups and then the isolated galaxies. And galaxies seem to be moving in a way that they f- sort of fall into the gravitational attraction of a group, while at the same time, that group might be falling into the gravitational attraction of the cluster. So gravity is making every everything move, and that's how, that's how groups can grow and also how clusters can grow. And what happens when they move in, in towards these big clusters? Ah, that, that is the, at the heart of, of a lot of research that, that people are doing because the environment in a cluster or in a group is different than the environment out in where a galaxy is isolated. So a couple of things to, to keep in mind. One, if you're more likely to bump into another galaxy, that will affect the, the shape of the galaxy. That can also affect the way the galaxy deals with its gas. And we can talk about gas in a second. Um, the other thing that might be happening in a cluster is there's something we call the intergalactic medium. That is material that is in between the galaxies. It's really hard to see, but because the volume is so large, there's a, that, that gas has a big impact on a galaxy. And so if you think about yourself as an analogy, 
you're driving down the highway, and if you stick your arm out the window, you will feel your arm kind of being pushed back as you're driving down the highway. That's what we call ram pressure. That's the pressure of the air pushing your arm. So a galaxy that moves into a cluster might feel some ram pressure, and that can have the effect of, of removing gas out of the galaxy. Now, why do we need gas? Gas is what we need to make stars. And so all of the stars that we see, our own sun, all the stars in the night sky, once back in their past, were formed out of gas. So if a galaxy doesn't have gas, it can't make any more stars. And so that's what we, we call this quenching. So that's the effect of moving into a cluster is that you lose, the galaxy loses its ability either quickly or over a little bit of time, loses its ability to make new stars. And how do you observe this effect? I mean, what, what is the observational manifestation oh, of that? Now you're asking the hard question. <laughs> so, there's a, so there's a couple of examples where we actually have seen galaxies in clusters and we looked at their, their gas distribution. And this is where a telescope like Meerkat will come into place, looking at where that gas is and actually see the gas being stripped out of the galaxy. You can actually see the morphology. You can look at the velocities of that gas. You're pretty sure it looks like, like this ram pressure stripping. Most of the time, the effect is more subtle. And what we're asking and what we're looking at with a telescope like SALT is what is the star formation history of that galaxy? How many stars has it made and when did it make those stars? And if we can look at that, that can tell us how rapid the process was that shut off star formation, or was it a very long-lived process that sort of gradually decreased the amount of star formation over time? So we want to read that star formation history by looking at the optical light of the galaxy. So to get a star formation history, I assume you do some sort of population statistics, right? We, we, yes. You're, you're looking at how many stars of a certain age are sitting in this galaxy. Ex exactly. How many stars of a certain age, and that correlates to how many stars of a certain mass, and we try to put all that together. And so, as I mentioned before, the light from a galaxy, particularly its optical spectrum, is really both its signature, but also its history. It's recorded in that optical spectrum. So a telescope like SALT has the instruments to, to read that history. And then we can use statistical models and our understanding of how stars evolve to try to tease out to say, hey, this is a galaxy that formed 20% of its stars 4 billion years ago and another 20% 2 billion years ago, for, for example. So we should probably make it clear, though, that you can't resolve every star in another galaxy. No. So you're going to have to somehow um, estimate the stellar population? Yeah, exactly. It's the integrated. So the light you see from a galaxy is the combined light of all of the stars. And now mm. you're going to tease that out. You're going to tease out. That sounds challenging. Uh, that, that is not easy. <laughs> but yeah, we, we have, you can sort of reverse engineer this. Right, So if you say, okay, I can't see the individual stars in some other galaxy, I can see the individual stars in the Milky Way, and I can see the individual stars in the Magellanic Clouds because they're very nearby. So what if I were to take a lot of spectra of those stars? So now I'm going to go to a telescope and I'm going to collect, say, a thousand stellar spectra of individual stars, and now just let me add those together. And I can do that in a way that gives me a sense of how this population modeling can work by building it on individual stars that I know about in our own Milky Way. So when you're looking at the the way s stars are forming inside these galaxies in clusters and in groups and mm -hmm. things, what kind of differences do you see? 
So we, we look at, um, so young stars. So say a galaxy has had a recent episode of star formation. Those young stars tend to be very blue. And so we would see sort of enhancement in the blue light in that galaxy compared to the red light. For an older galaxy that has not formed new stars recently, the light is much, is much redder. And the shape of the spectrum is very different. That is the shape of the light that we see as a function of wavelength is going to be different depending upon the, the most recent star formation in the in the galaxy so we really need the spectrum uh, to be able to get that shape and that's what we're actually going to model and salt is obviously very good at this salt uh, is really good at this okay. <laughs> how good uh it, it it's a lot of glass and so this is hard you want a lot you want to get as much light as you can because where well, you're going to take that light and now you're going to spread that light out so if you don't have very much light you can't really spread it out very much because you'll lose all of your signal so having a really big telescope allows us to really get a good spectrum of the galaxy because we can collect a lot of light spread that light out over over the whole optical chunk of the spectrum and then the instrumentation is what does that the the prisms and the gratings we have in the instrumentation actually is what spreads that that light out. You mentioned Meerkat br briefly. So do you also work with other telescopes in addition to SALT in terms of characterizing these galaxies? Oh sure, I actually grew up as a radio astronomer. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> now just is interested. Yes. <laughs> one point for radio astronomer. Yeah. So, well, he did leave. Yeah. Oh. I but I came. But I came. I came back. Can I tell you? Can I tell a story? That's of course. Off topic. So, um, in nineteen, I think it was nineteen twenty-eight. So there's a there's a fellow who graduated from my university, University of Wisconsin, in nineteen twenty-eight. It was before my time, uh, by the name of Carl Jansky. Huh. Oh, I've heard the name. Yeah, that name. you heard that name. <laughs> he got a job working for this company called Bell Labs, which was in New Jersey in the United States. And his job, one of his key jobs was to understand the source of noise that Bell Labs was getting as they were developing the ability to communicate using radio waves. So he was really a technician trying to understand signal in this newfangled technology. Uh, and over the course of a couple of years, he realized that the source of noise that he was getting was, first of all, it was seasonal. So it wasn't there all the time. It varied with the time of year. And then he pinpointed that that source of noise was coming from the constellation Sagittarius which happens to be where the center of the Milky Way is. And so Carl Jansky discovered radio emission coming out of the center of the Milky Way. And that was the beginning of radio astronomy. And that, of course, is because of uh, the black hole at the center of the galaxy. That is right? because of the black hole. And there's a whole lot of good stuff going on in the center of the Milky Way. So. Yeah, there sure is. I mean, the, the recent images from Meerkat of the center yeah. of the Milky Way are astounding. They are, they are absolutely amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Yes. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So I am. I did grow up as a radio astronomer. Um, I spent actually a couple of years working at the Very Large Array Radio Telescope in New Mexico, which is now the Jansky Very Large Array. Um, and so that's where I really got my professional start doing astronomy. Was doing radio astronomy. And now you dabble in both. And now I dabble in both because it's. Yeah, the things that we are interested in understanding in the universe rarely can be really understood by just looking at one particular wavelength because the different wavelengths give us a different insight on the aspects of the, the physical processes that are going on in that object or objects that we're interested in. And so being able to look at, at optical astronomy and radio astronomy gives us a much com more complete picture of what's going on in a galaxy. So take this this evolution that we're talking about. The stars are giving off most of their light in the optical part of the spectrum. 
whereas the gas that those stars form from is giving off most of its light in the radio part of the spectrum. So if you're looking just as a radio astronomer, all you're seeing is sort of the raw materials out of which you're going to make, make stars. If you're an optical astronomer, all you're seeing is the product of that star formation process. By doing both, then you can begin to see the whole process take, take place. And kind of piece the puzzle. Kind of put the whole puzzle yeah. together, or, or if you if you like to bake, you mm. know, the radio astronomer can show you, you know, there's your bag of flour, there's your bag of sugar, and it sort of gets mixed together, but I have no idea what happens. So the optical astronomer, all you see is a bunch of cupcakes on the table, and you have no idea where they came from. So by putting those two together, you can see the whole process take place. I've never heard of galaxies referred to as cupcakes. <laughs> Some galaxies get so, upset about that. So we have cupcakes up. living in neighborhoods, right? Yeah, That's uh, you know, I try to bring this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I would love to see a cupcake in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets squished. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's just sad. <laughs> well, thanks very much for speaking with us today, Eric. Yeah, my pleasure. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Eric was talking a lot about uh, galaxies and their environments, and one of the things we spoke about was the intracluster medium. So this is this diffuse gas that makes up uh, about 80% of the mass of a cluster. So not all of the cluster, as you'd expect, is is in stars. It's A lot of it is sort of residing in a gaseous phase. It hasn't formed into stars yet, or it's the result of the death of a star, and it's been redistributed out into the cluster. Uh, so we'll be talking to Precious Sikusana, uh, who will be explaining some of her work about the intracluster medium and how we observe it. Yeah, so I, I spoke to Precious uh, recently, and she's from the University of... KwaZulu-Natal. <laughs> As am I. <laughs> Just that I couldn't quite get her tongue around that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to pra- practice saying that, but it's not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> KwaZulu-Natal. Good. That was good? That was good. Okay. So I spoke to Precious uh, a little while ago, and she was explaining to me how she's doing some really cool work on electrons that are being accelerated in the large-scale magnetic fields throughout this intracluster medium of galaxies. And uh, as these these uh, electrons are interacting with the magnetic field, they're releasing uh, radio waves. Um, as we spoke about, as we as we were speaking about in episode four, when we spoke to Imogen Whittam and Lorato Sibacolotti, um but this time these this radio emission is is very diffuse and that means that it's it's very faint and it's spread out over a really large patch of the sky uh and so it's quite hard to detect because if you imagine um the amount of light fr- coming from a a light bulb for example we can see it because it's all concentrated in a, in a small space so it's quite intense but if we take that same amount of light and we spread it out across the size of uh, a football field for example it's going to be quite hard to see that light because it's it's not actually that bright and it's spread over a very large area so that's what we're trying to do when we look at this diffuse emission from the intracluster medium 
is trying to catch this quite faint light but over a large area and Precious is doing that with a few telescopes. She's using the giant meter wave radio telescope or GMRT which is in India. It's a big radio telescope in India and that's recently been upgraded to something called the UGMRT which I think stands for upgraded GMRT (laughs) (laughs) predictably. Um, Yes, astronomers aren't super great at naming their telescopes (laughs) Um, and uh, and then she's even going on to use South Africa's new Meerkat telescope. And with each of these sort of upgraded telescopes, you're, you're able to see fainter and fainter things. These telescopes are more and more sensitive. And so you've got a better chance of detecting this faint diffuse light, this faint diffuse radio light. Precious is taking the the data from these telescopes and she is trying to reduce it. And so that means when you get data from a telescope, it's in quite a... Um, Messy? Yeah. It's quite a complicated format. It you, you don't have a nice image yet. So you have to do something called a reduction in order to get that into a format that the human brain can understand. Um, so she's working on that. And she's also working on these kind of simulations to predict how long you need to use the telescope and point it at these clusters of galaxies in order to uh, make an actual detection of this diffuse emission because you kind of need an idea in advance so that you can you can request a certain amount of time to use the telescope. You just don't get infinite amount of time to use it. You have to say, you know what, I think it's going to take this many hours with this telescope to detect this emission. And so she's running these simulations to figure out how many hours we need on the telescopes to perform uh, statistical studies of these galaxies and these galaxy clusters. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned statistical studies. I, I guess... Um, for the listener, what we're trying to do is, is have a large sample, so a large number of uh, galaxies or observations of this diffuse emission. You don't want to just look at one cluster and then look at its its intracluster medium and decide that this is how a cluster works. Uh, in order to have a better understanding, you want to have as big a sample or as a big a, as big a selection as possible, uh, and and then you can develop a, a statistically significant. A sample which you can do some sort of real study on. Yeah, so in this context, when we say sample, we mean the number of clusters that are being looked at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's hear what Precious had to say. Absolutely. I'm talking to Precious, who is a PhD student. Precious, can you tell us who you are? Hi, Jacinta. Uh, I'm Snintlantla Precious Sikosana, and I'm a student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. So just a a brief background about myself is um, I was born in a town called Harding, which is a small town in the south of uh, KwaZulu-Natal, and did my primary school there, and then moved to a town called Durban, which is the major town in KwaZulu-Natal, and did my high schooling there. And uh, for most of my uh, university, I've been at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, studying in undergraduate uh, of uh, pure physics and applied mathematics. And then in postgrad, I focused in astronomy. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you research? Okay, so my research focus is on um, studying non-thermal emission in 
galaxy clusters. So basically uh, what galaxy clusters are is that you have individual galaxies like our Milky Way, but then you have a large group of them bound together by gravity. So that is what we call galaxy clusters. And so in this galaxy clusters, you have this very hot gas between the galaxies, which is what we call the intracluster medium. So in that hot gas, you also have magnetic fields and highly energetic electrons that are moving at very fast speed. So these electrons actually spiral along the magnetic field lines and actually eject photons. So it is these photons that we detect at radio wavelength and we call them uh, diffuse emission. Okay, so you're trying to detect this diffuse emission from these, these electrons in the intercluster medium of enormous galaxy clusters. These are huge structures. Why are you trying to detect this emission? In the previous studies that I've been down, they've mainly focused on what we call the thermal emission, which is mainly from um, your optical observations. Now, the non-thermal emission, which is this diffuse emission, tells you about the intracluster medium, which makes up 80% of the galaxy clusters. And so basically, by understanding this diffuse emission and the magnetic fields and the relativistic electrons, you in turn understand how these galaxy clusters are formed and how they evolved and in turn how the universe evolves. So are there any particular galaxy clusters that you're looking at? Okay, so basically what we are trying to do is that we are targeting certain questions that haven't been answered in the field. So basically like how this diffuse emission changes over time and how when two clusters collide, how the formation and the characteristics that this emission has, how these are affected, and also how these highly energetic and uh, relativistic electrons come about. And so to try to answer these questions, you need a sample that is uniform, large enough to perform statistical studies, but also spans a wide mass and rich of range. And so this is what my project is doing. And so um, what we basically do is that we obtain our galaxy clusters from an Atacama Cosmology Telescope, which is called ACT. And from this uh, uh, galaxy clusters, we obtained a sample of 40 uh, uniformly selected clusters, which do span a, a wide mass and redshift range, like ranges that haven't been studied before. And so we follow this cluster up using the giant meter wave radio telescope, which is the GMRT, which is based in India. So you used the data from a telescope in Chile and you are using some data, you're collecting your own data from a telescope in India, the GMRT. And what are you going to do with that data? So we are basically involved uh, from reducing the data because it comes as raw visibilities, so as the uh, telescopes observe. And so we basically make images. So from these images, we reduce using different uh, astronomical softwares to make these pretty pictures, which we want to do the science with. And so that's the first part of the project. And once we have these pretty pictures, we then want to extract this diffuse emission. And so basically, this involves like um, removing sources that are very 
brighten the field because this emission is very faint. And so once we detect it, we can then, um, for interesting studies or like dynamical studies of what's going on in the cluster, we follow it up with uh, multi-wavelength data. But once we have observed all these 40 clusters, our main aim is to do scaling relations. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a scaling relation is? Okay, so basically scaling relation is how one property relates to another. So basically how your luminosity, for example, how bright your cluster is, changes with how powerful your radiation is. What has been your involvement in this whole process of getting the data from these telescopes? So uh, my main involvement when it comes to proposals is that uh, my co-supervisor is the main PI, but I help with uh, trying to figure out the amount of time that we require to observe a cluster so that if there is diffuse emission, which is this uh, emission that we're looking for, so that we can detect it. So basically, we have to run simulations and simulate how the data would look like when we observe that cluster so that we can see how long we have to look at it so that we can extract the emission. And how do you make a simulation? Um, so what we basically do is we use uh, an astronomy software, which we call CASA, because it has functions that we can basically try to create uh, how the observation would look like. So you basically give it properties of the telescope and how long you want to observe for, and you tell it where to look, so the object that you'll actually be observing. And so it creates something that is like the real data that you'll see. And you also try to also create an image, which is what we do. And so with this fake data, you also uh, invo uh, involve the imaging process as well. And so by the end of this, you are able to see if I observe for this long, will I be able to see the emission? Great. So your simulations are helping you plan for your real observations because that telescope time is so precious. You want to, to make sure you're, you're, you're doing the right thing, that you're looking at this object for long enough that you expect to see something. Have you actually seen anything in your data yet? Um, yes, I have actually. So for my master's project, there were two galaxy clusters that had uh, a marginal detection of this fuzzy uh, diffuse emission and so what we're actually doing at the moment is we're following up those clusters using a more sensitive version of the GMRT and we are hopeful that we'll actually confirm this diffuse emission. How exciting that you've made some detections and, and I hope that they end up being real in, in the new data. So there's this upgraded telescope in, in India that you're using, um, but there's also a new big telescope here in South Africa. Are you going to be using that for your work? Um, yes, that's also very exciting news. So we are planning to use uh, Meerkat for our work as well. And so basically here we want to go big and crazy <laughs> in a sense. So we also want to observe uh, a sample, but now we want to go from like 40 to like 200 or 500 wow. because Meerkat will be so sensitive that um, what we were observing for eight hours, we can do in like an hour. So that's the crazy part. But um, I've been very fortunate to also receive a Meerkat commissioning data. 
so it's like real existing data and it's mm. already in my hands and um, I've started working on it and it's just beautiful and amazing to work with. So, for example, we uh, they observed the very famous bullet cluster and it has been studied before intensively, but what you see with Meerkat is just magical. You see the traces of the bullet, which is seen in the X-ray emission and these features are for the first time being seen in the radio uh, wavelength. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm quite jealous that you've got some commissioning data. That's very, very sought after stuff. Can you tell us more about the bullet clusters and what, what is the bullet cluster and what do you see? Okay, so a bullet cluster is basically two galaxy clusters that are colliding. And the thing that is special about this event is that it happens in a region where we are able to see spectacular things happening. So for example, you see the dark matter passing through the normal matter, and this can be traced by various uh, wavelengths. So it's visible in the x-ray and in the radio as well. So with Meerkat, you you will probably be able to detect maybe hundreds of, of galaxy clusters and their diffuse emission in the radio. What is this going to tell us about the universe? With the high detections, you can basically try to fine-tune the theories that currently exist. And so basically try to answer some of the questions that are not understood about how this intracluster medium works. So basically how these high, uh, highly energetic and uh, fast moving electrons come about and how what happens when these two giant uh, galaxies collide and so on. So basically the bigger picture is to understand the evolution of these galaxy clusters and in turn of the universe. Really amazing stuff, Precious. Um, congratulations on all of your work so far and, and good luck for the future. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you and thank you for having me here. All right, so another big episode today, packed full of science and galaxies and... and big things. Big things. Clusters. Yep, huge things. Yeah. Pretty much as big as it gets. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. I, um, I mean, as we mentioned in episode one, I, I studied uh, galaxy evolution and, and these sorts of clusters for, for my PhD. It's, uh, so it's quite close to my heart and, um, it's always lovely to see what's going on in the field and, and from both an observational and a, a theoretical point of view. Yeah. Is it related to what you did in your PhD? Uh, sort of. I, I did actually do some work on the environments of clusters. Uh, again, I was doing the simulation side of it. So we were running simulations uh, of galaxies and galaxy clusters in different environments and trying to w figure out how those clusters differ uh, based on our uh, understanding of physics and how gas physics works. And it's it's obviously a, a completely different field to, to taking an observation, trying to understand what you see. Uh, you're using the your physical understanding of it and, and making a making an artificial cluster which you can then compare to the obs observations and see how close you get. Yeah, I mean we'll definitely talk more about the simulations of galaxies in the future. Definitely. And that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Cosmic Savannah. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and our website at thecosmicsavannah.com. That's Savannah spelt S-A-V-A N-N-A-H, where we'll have links related to today's episode. 
Special thanks today to Professor Eric Wilcotts and Precious Sikosana for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Allnut for the music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, and Lana Sarai for the graphic design used to create the podcast art. This episode was created with the support of the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leaving us a review. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. And she's from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. No? <laughs> Natal. Natal. I mean, this is my hometown. This okay. Is- <clears throat> and she's from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Damn it, I can't do it. <laughs> Maybe I should do it. KwaZulu-Natal. KwaZulu-Natal. Yeah, there, that's good. <laughs> KwaZulu-Natal. KwaZulu-Natal. <laughs>